Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with remarks by Governor Newsom of California that the Democrats are getting crushed by Republicans because they are too timid and are playing defense, while the Republicans dominate with illusion. We will look into why the Democrats are not fired up for the midterms like the Republicans are, particularly in the face of a Republican push to capture the electoral machinery to create a one-party state in which the Democrats will be a permanent minority, no matter how many votes they get. Joining us is David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at Newsweek, Democrats Must Stop Republican Sadism at the Border. Then we'll look into Saturday's Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas, at which Pete Buttigieg, Carl Rove and Gavin Newsom spoke with Liz Cheney, the keynote speaker. Joining us to discuss the highlights is Zach Despart, a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton tells court not to trust Biden in Trump records case. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of why a small country of 10 million in the middle of Europe has such an outsized influence over the U.S., having provided the anti-woke ideology and electoral autocracy strategy that has captured Trump's GOP to want to imitate the regime Viktor Orban has installed in Hungary. Joining us is Peter Krekow, who is a senior fellow with the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the director of the Political Capital Institute in Budapest, a social psychologist and political scientist. He's the author of The Hungarian Far-Right Social Demand, Political Supply and International Context, and Mass Paranoia, The Social Psychology of Conspiracy Theories and Fake News. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at Newsweek, Democrats Must Stop Republican Sadism at the Border. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Farris. 
Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, David. And um, what did you make of the speech down in Austin, Texas on Saturday before the Texas Tribune Festival, where California Governor Newsom called for an overhaul of Democratic political strategies, saying that the Democrats are getting crushed by Republicans in part because they're too timid and they're often forced to play defense while Republicans dominate the illusion. So these are fighting words. And he also went on to say, for example, that referring to the Republicans, these guys are ruthless on the other side. So how do you see the alignment here as we are, what, weeks away from uh, critical, if not one of the most critical midterm elections in the country's history? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree in, in the broad outline with what uh, Governor Newsom was saying there um, to forge a more aggressive rhetorical strategy, um, both in how we talk about our Republican adversaries, but also um, how we speak about specific issues and, and the way that we can seize on them to, to set the agenda rather than um, doing things sort of reactively, uh, letting Republicans frame the, the sort of the narrative around the issue as they do around immigration, I think, all too often. Um, and, and going on on the offensive, right? Like uh, kind of taking the fight to to your opponents in the in the same way that they're bringing it to you. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I agree with that. I think the I do think that message is being heard in the White House, um, where the I think there's been a, a huge shift in communication strategy in the last two months or so. I think some people have heard the message, right? So I just knew them was speaking as if uh, nothing has changed. But, uh, but I do think that there's a, a real clamoring among Democratic activists and, and donors and elites for a, for a tougher strategy to, to fend off Republican challenges to democracy and, and other things that, uh, that the party cares about. Well, Newsom did imply that he wasn't critical of either Biden or Nancy Pelosi, but good governance by itself is not enough to win elections. So do you think that all of the achievements that Biden has been able to, almost every day he comes up with something more. He's the paradigm of good governance. But is that what counts in in this highly polarized, emotionally charged electoral environment? Well, I wish it was. You know, I, I wish that um, policy achievements alone were sufficient to convince a, a majority of the electorate to, to return you to power. But the reality is that's not how, necessarily how, how most people think. Um, People, individuals don't always attribute um, specific policies to the government. You know, um, the Affordable Care Act is a, is a great example of, uh, you know, sort of running your policy achievements through the private sector and then not really getting any credit um, for, for what you've done. And, you know, another great example is the Obama's bailout of the auto sector, which, which did, did thousands of jobs in, in the United States. And yet, into the, um, you know, a few years later, um, most people, many people in those states were voting Republican, um, even though their their nominee at the time, Mitt Romney, opposed the bailout. So it's not just that like you you don't always get credit for the policy achievements. It's that um, you know the people's political memories are short. You know? I mean, most Americans are just struggling to get by and you know going to bed at 11 p.m. after putting their kids to bed, and they don't really have time to think about this stuff. And so you have to prepare a a communication strategy to reach voters, um, particularly independents who generally pay attention to politics less and not until an election is closer and they're a little bit more susceptible to, to messaging and um, shifts in how you frame the issues. So um, definitely Biden has been on a roll. I think Democrats have been on a roll. Um, 
I think the, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade kind of reset the national political environment in ways that are more favorable to Democrats. But it's still up to the party to, to capitalize on, um, on on that territory that's being ceded to them. Um, and I think what Governor Newsom was saying was like, you know, this work's not going to do itself. Um, I think he was, was responding to, to Ron DeSantis' uh, political stunt of uh, sending um, asylum seekers on a plane to Martha's Vineyard under false pretenses. And uh, just kind of asking Democrats to um, not just to kind of respond in kind, but also like, well, what is our strategy here? Right? Like, why are we afraid to tell the voters what we want to do um, with this issue? I, I think our positions are more popular. Let's just let's do that, you know? <laughs> right, but what are the positions on on the border? I mean, Biden, at the end of a, an announcement he made the other day, he answered the question from the press about the border where 2 million people have shown up in the last year. And Betty pointed out that this is a different group of people. It's not the Central Americans from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, but rather refugees from Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Sure. I mean, you know, each wave of migration presents its own unique challenges, you know, and, and people fleeing from Venezuela are, are seeking political asylum here. And I think the reality is that our our asylum system um, is, is probably overtaxed and overwhelmed. Um, and that contributes to the sense that there is chaos at the border. But I think in a broader sense, um, in addition to investing in the kind of resources that you would need, permanent long-term resources to, um, to process asylum seekers, to speed up these processes, to um, speed up the bureaucratic processes that are uh, maybe standing in the way. I think he had an announcement about that today. Uh, you also need a, a broader settlement on the immigration issue. And, and here is where I think Democrats have been on the right side of public opinion for, for going on 20 years now. That is a, the creation of a robust uh, guest worker system in the United States um, in exchange for um, border security, which you know, however you feel about these things is relatively popular with American voters. And, you know, past, pathways to citizenship for dreamers, pathways to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, um, and openness to refugees. These are all things that um, the right thing to do. They poll well. Uh, of course, anything is susceptible to how you frame it, but that's why you have to get out there and get ahead of the messaging war with Republicans who are who are very adept at coming up with, with specific phrases that have negative connotations to hang around um, Democratic policies they don't they don't like. Um, and I don't see uh, even even with Biden's new aggressiveness recently, I, I don't see. Um, a real eagerness from the White House to fight this battle. I think what they what they seem to want to do is to make this go away <laughs> as quickly as possible. And um, and I you know I'm I'm on the I'm on the page that um, you know we've pushed many times this century for a, for a big compromise on immigration. And it, while it may not be possible to get that through the Senate today, I still think it's worth pointing out um, that that we are the party that wants to do these things, and we're not the ones holding it up um, and to kind of you know place the blame where it belongs. But in terms of Gavin Newsom's suggestion that the Democrats are getting crushed by Republicans and that is in part because they're too timid, it would seem to me that there ought to be a, you know, a five-alarm fire going on here about the fact that you could make the case that this election in November may be the last Democratic election in America's history because the Republicans are aggressively setting up the machinery at the state level, at the local level, they're capturing the actual machinery of voting. And all of the Trump's fantasies about stop the steal 
and the coup that he, that he tried to stage, they've learned from that and now they're doing one better. They're literally setting up a situation where you will have a one-party state in this country because it won't matter who you vote for. The Republicans will be counting the vote. It actually goes back to a cynical statement by Joseph Stalin. It doesn't matter who votes, but who counts the votes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, it's, it's worth remembering and noting that the only reason that Trump's post-2020 election conspiracy didn't work is because a, a handful of Republicans and, and key places refused to go along with it. Uh, you know, you had Republican governors like Doug Ducey and, and Brian Kemp who, who just would not play their the role that Trump wanted them to play in terms of not certif- certifying the election. And so uh, they have been working diligently for a year and more than a year to, to put people in those places, whether that's secretary of state offices or governorships or control of local election machinery, as you put it, so that they can carry out a more a more successful version of this plot. Um, I think um, I've, I've seen some ads by Katie Hobbs, who's a Democratic um, nominee for governor in Arizona. That really hits her opponent, uh, Carrie Lake, who's an election denialist and, and a conspiracy theorist who wants to do these things. She has some very effective messaging and, and, and ads that are out there that I think some, some other Democrats in tough races should be paying close attention to. Um, I do think another reason, maybe not hearing more about this, is that um, Republicans have chosen pretty bad candidates in a couple of key races that, that are critical to their election plot, including um, uh, Michigan with Tudor, Tudor Dixon, and, and I think most problematically for them is Doug Mastriano in, in Pennsylvania. Um, He's just a, just a terrible candidate who's likely to get blown out. And so I, there's a, a way in which Democrats can get too complacent here. Um, if they do win a number of these governor's races, uh, I think the, the sense might be that this, this crisis has passed, and I don't think it has. I, I don't think Republicans are going to stop trying to find ways to steal the 2024 election um, until, until they've been stopped in their tracks. And I don't see why the party uh, can't be sending out multiple messages at the same time. You know, one about uh, abortion. Um, one about the economy, one about the, the protection of democracy. And it's a, it's a tough line to, to walk because you only have so much attention from the voters. But, uh, but the, yeah, they, they really need to be treating this like it's an existential threat to the future of American democracy. And I hope to see more of that sort of battle-ready spirit. Well, a simple one-liner. If you don't vote in November, it may be your last chance to vote. I mean... I just don't understand why our hair is not on fire here because it's so fundamental and so brazen what they're doing. They're not disguising the fact that they are anti-democratic. Their hero is this creep in Hungary, Orban, and they're doing it. They're rigging the vote. And if you don't vote them out in November, then they'll set in place the machinery that will guarantee Trump or DeSantis will be the next president of the United States because it won't matter who, how you vote. That is, seems so fundamental. It's either, you know, we talk about our sacred elections and our great democracy. Well, it's being absolutely eviscerated before our eyes. I agree. I mean, I think the, the U.S. Republican Party is the leader of a global neo-authoritarian movement um, that wants to erect these facade democracies around the world um, in, the, in the style of Hungary. But I think their ultimate goal looks, looks something more like Russia, right? um, where you have uh, the sort of the patriarch safeguarding um, the traditional white Christian majority. 
and that's the model they want to bring here. Um, and, and the way they're doing it is uh, both state level and national. You know, you've got the, the Wisconsin model where um, there's the circular structure of authority with the Supreme Court and the dairy United state legislatures, such that Democrats can never really truly take power. And I think that they want to try something like that on the federal level. Uh, and they're almost there. So, um, yeah, we, we should be treating this like our, our hair should be on fire about this. I think the challenge is getting the voters to, to see that. You know, I think most voters still regard the, the Republican Party as a, as a normal actor in American politics, perhaps currently led by someone um, that they don't like, but that, uh, that could be returned to normalcy with, with another election cycle. Um, and it's why I was happy to see the Biden administration, uh, President Biden, deliver that speech um, a few weeks ago about threats to democracy. I think they need to double down on that. I think they need to implicate the whole Republican Party um, because it is pretty much the same. Uh, there's not much difference between a MAGA Republican and, and, and the rest of the Republican Party right now. But they're either in on it or they're going along with it. Um, and I think that Democrats still have work to do trying to convince uh, a majority of the electorate that you simply cannot hand power to these people right now. Um, they're, they're too dangerous. And uh, that's, that's the work, um, I think, not just this year, but it's a, it's a long-term project that, that has to be engaged in. But the speech that you referred to, David Ferris, in Philadelphia recently by President Biden in front of the building where the Declaration of Independence was hashed out and finally signed, it wasn't carried by the major networks. So it was a fine speech, but I don't see how it's getting out to the average voter. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the media can, can be, a, be an obstacle here sometimes. Um, I think... And then Biden himself may not may not always be the best messenger here. Um, it is uh, you can envision a, a kind of a, a younger, more aggressive party firebrand like like Gavin Newsom, um, who's, who's sort of better at, at getting the press attention um, and, and, and drawing the eyes of voters to the issue. But uh, but we are where we are right now. Um, I think that the the election is so close now. Um, most of the ads are cut. Most of the ads are bought. Um, and it, it's really up to um, local party leaders and, and the national leadership to to rally the volunteers, um, and most importantly at this point, to be getting out the vote. Um, Democrats turn their people out. Um, they, they should be able to, to hold the House and hold the Senate and, uh, and stop, stop the 2024 plot in its tracks by, by winning these key governorships. And if they can do that, then, then there's a minute to breathe and, and try to reassess um, our strategy going into 2024 and beyond. Um, so at this point, you know, I'm not sure it's even a matter of, of the president's messaging as, as much as it is, um, you know, persuading that, that small slice of the electorate that this is a crisis um, and then getting every, you know, every single Democrat that turned out in 2020 needs to come out and turn out again in 2022. Um, because these are going to be close elections. It's going to be a hard fought contest. Uh, some people, you know, there's, there's still some dissatisfaction with the economy and inflation and things like that. And it's up to Democrats to make sure that the election is fought on their terms and, and not on Republicans. Well, just in closing, it seems though you've got an election going in um, Ohio where J.D. Vance, who is being funded by tech billionaire Peter Thiel, who basically is trying to buy two Senate seats, one in Ohio and one in Arizona. It's not going well for him in Arizona. But for reasons which I find mystifying, even though Trump, did a rally the other day for J.D. Vance, in which he humiliated him, saying, you know, this is a guy that criticized me, but now he's kissing my ass. I mean, 
it's talk about a backhanded endorsement. And yet the polls are even. This is the part that I find mystifying. That, you know, I know that traditionally in midterms, the party in, that has the White House suffers reverses. But I don't even understand the mechanism there. But history seems to indicate that it's a fact. I don't know how you break that spell, whether it's some kind of weird inertia or whether it's just about turn-up. And if it's about turnout, then there's got to be a major rallying cry out there. Yeah, I mean, to, to win that Ohio Senate seat, you know, we need more than turnout. Right? I mean, uh, you kind of need everybody, everything to break your way. And this is a state that Trump won handily in 2020. It seems to be some, somewhat similar political environment, if not a little bit more Republican-leaning. And uh, the Democrats just got, got lucky here in a way. They got their top recruit for the seat, this Tim Ryan, who's a sitting member of the House. I remember he ran for president in 2020 very briefly. Um, so he's a good messenger, I think, for Ohio Democrats. Uh, he's got that kind of working class vibe and has, I think, long staked out a position um, against the party hierarchy about, about trade and, and things like that that are, I think, important to people in rural Ohio. Um, and Republicans, you know, I, they, they made a mistake in nominating this, this J.D. Vance guy. And it's just, uh, you know, six years ago, he was, uh, you know, he was a moderate writing hillbilly elegy. Uh, so every liberal in America, I think, went and rushed to the bookstore to, to read after the 2016 election. And then he's, uh, you know, farmed out his Twitter account to, to have someone to make him seem as mega as possible. And I, I, I don't think it comes off as very authentic. Um, and I think that's why he's having some problems in Ohio. Um, I will say, you know, we have a now long track record of, of underperforming our polls in Ohio, <laughs> so I'd be a little bit skeptical of these numbers. But the, but it's it's going to be a, it's going to be a close race, I think, closer than probably it should be based on the underlying partisan dynamics. And um, you know, I think Democrats nationally can learn a thing or two from from Tim Ryan about um, how to communicate with the kind of voters that the party has lost over the last twenty or thirty years. Well, David Farris, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be here again, Ian. Thanks so much. And again, I'll be speaking with David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in the Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging and Activism in Europe, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at Newsweek, Democrats Must Stop Republican Sadism at the Border. We can take a brief station break and back look into the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas, at which Pete Buttigieg, Carl Rove, and Gavin Newsom spoke with Liz Cheney, the keynote speaker. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zach Despart, who's a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends. 
through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton tells court not to trust Biden in Trump records case. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Despot. Glad to be here, Ian. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Saturday's Texas Tribune Festival in Austin really attracted some real headlines and headliners. The keynote and closing speech came from Liz Cheney, but also the California governor, Gavin Newsom, made headlines. And I mean, he's obviously there's some kind of war going on between him and Abbott, the uh, governor of Texas. But the fact that the governor of California was so outspoken about the Democratic parties and its messaging, saying that the Republicans are crushing them and that they're being too timid. You were there, obviously. What was the impression given by the that talk from Governor Newsom in terms of how did the audience respond? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, a lot of people <laughs> came to... Governor Newsom was one of the more crowded uh, speakers of, of quite the star-studded lineup. I think a lot of people in Texas thought it was refreshing to see uh, a powerful Democratic governor. We've had a Republican governor for um, quite, quite a long time, a couple of decades now. Uh, so Governor Newsom was pretty candid about uh, the struggles he sees within the, the Democratic Party and how it messages to voters. He had said that um, Republican office holders and candidates supplanted by and supported by sort of conservative media outlets uh, focus a lot uh, less on the facts and more on emotion. And he thinks that that resonates a lot with voters. He has faulted the Democratic Party with uh, sometimes relying too much on the idea that if we just merely present the facts, uh, we will be fine with voters. He said that Republicans have really taken advantage of that. Uh, this is a particularly difficult midterm election for Democrats. Um, it would be historically in any midterm year. Uh, it's particularly hard for the Biden administration and the people running for Congress because of, of things like inflation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Governor Newsom said that uh, Democrats should really uh, choose to fight harder uh, and be less, uh, you know, not not to depart from the facts, of course, but uh, to not uh, be so boring about it, I guess. Right. Well, he he said these guys are ruthless on the other side. And in saying that the Democrats are getting crushed by Republicans, in part because they're too timid and they're often forced to play defense while Republicans dominate the illusion. And he also pointed out that good governance by itself is not enough to win elections. And um, that sort of indirectly addresses uh, Biden's dilemma, does it not? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. And um, his his moderator had brought up the fact that the Biden administration has had a number of legislative achievements this year and really ones that any president would really envy. And Governor Newsom sort of stressed like that's not you know the end all and be all. Voters aren't tuned into sort of the minutia of government and what Congress is doing at any given time. Uh, and he really you know feared you know, absent more powerful messaging. Uh, the Democrats could fare pretty poorly this November, despite their legislative successes in Congress. So in terms of this battle between Governor Newsom 
and Governor Abbott of Texas. Newsom, of course, he's got plenty of campaign funds and he's not likely to be be challenged, but it'll be insignificant for re-election in November. So he's got some money to spend and he's spending it on TV ads in Florida, urging people to move to California, which is in the name of freedom, away from the oppressive nature of uh, Governor DeSantis's more authoritarian governance. He's taken out full-page ads in newspapers in Texas uh, against uh, the state's gun laws, and he's putting up uh, billboards in seven states urging women to come to California if they need an abortion. So some people say he's posturing for federal office to run for president, but he's quite adamant that he's not. Is it having any effect in Texas, these billboards? I mean, these newspaper ads? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I will say that uh, Governor Newsom emphatically denied that he would run for president during his speech on on Saturday. You know, ask him in a couple of years, I guess. I wouldn't put too much stock in that. Uh, I mean, Texas politicians for a long time um, have liked to use, you know, California as a, a political foil. It's the only state that's more populous than we are. Um, and, you know, we, we have had... Uh, robust population growth here. And we get a lot of people who move from California, um, people who, for many reasons, you know, might seek a, a different climate, a lower cost of living. They might like the politics better. But Governor Abbott certainly likes to needle uh, Governor Newsom and his predecessors about the fact that, you know, Texas continues to grow at quite a steady clip. And we get more residents from California than California gets from us. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, average uh, Texas average voters, I think that there there is something to be said about Texas now has almost completely banned abortion in almost all circumstances. I think that has given a lot of Texans anxiety, not just women, of course. I think that will be an issue in this election. Uh, how much of an issue, I'm not sure. But I think, you know, longer term, when individuals, professionals, companies are deciding, you know, whether to move to Texas or to a place like California, um, access to reproductive health care will be uh, a, an issue that they consider. So I think that is um, probably a worthwhile political point for Governor Newsom to make. Uh, but beyond that, <laughs> I'm not sure how else, um, how much else uh, Governor Newsom's, you know, billboards or anything like that really resonate with um, actual Texans versus sort of making a political point. But also at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas on Saturday, Carl Rove, didn't he make a similar point about how the draconian abortion laws in Texas might backfire and that the the legislature, the state legislature could change and be turned democratic. Yes, he did. Um, of course, remember, Carl Rowe was uh, a key advisor to George W. Bush, who used to be governor of Texas before he was president, and compared to Governor Abbott, was definitely more moderate. Um, it wasn't just Carl Rowe. It was a couple of uh, members of the Texas legislature, the people who actually passed the near total ban on abortion in Texas. Notably, um, our ban does not include exceptions for cases of incest and rape. Those are pretty common exceptions, even for states that are strict on abortion. Uh, So you could see the legislature sort of walk that back in the coming legislative session. Um, Governor Abbott's well positioned to win re-election over uh, Beto O'Rourke this year. It's not impossible that O'Rourke wins, but it's going to be tough. And the legislature will still be controlled by Republicans. But um, uh, voters have expressed dissatisfaction with how strict our abortion law is. So Republicans are definitely feeling pressure 
to amend that law. And, and that's sort of what they were touching on at TribFest. But Austin is a, is a little blue enclave in a red state, isn't it? And when you talk about people moving from California to Texas and not the other way around, are they moving to the blue parts like Austin or, or across the board in Texas? Yeah, I mean, Austin definitely a, a very most liberal. It's in the most liberal county, big county in um, Texas. Uh, so, I mean, our population growth is still driven by our cities, right? So, um, you know, uh, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin still growing very quickly. Um, beyond that, like their suburbs are booming, um, and those are a little bit more politically mixed, where uh, they used to be pretty steadfastly um, conservative, but as they grow in population, they're sort of sort of trending toward liberal. The problem for for Democrats running statewide campaigns like Better or Work is trying to do right now. Um, we have still enormous, like 200 counties that are rural and largely conservative. And if you add the population of those together, you know that's really what makes it hard for for Democrats to compete here. But yeah, our population growth is still uh, way disproportionately happening in our, our urban centers. So let's talk about the keynote speaker at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin on Saturday, and the keynote speaker being Liz Cheney, and um, also the f- closing speaker. Again, they asked her the question about uh, whether she, she's going to run for president. And she basically said, if Donald Trump runs for president, uh, I'm no longer going to be a Republican. So what was the response to her? It was, uh, she was definitely one of the, the more popular you know, speakers. The other, other sort of opening keynote we have was uh, Pete Buttigieg, transportation secretary. Um, I mean, there were certainly a lot of people in the audience who uh, disagree with Liz Cheney on tons of policy things. I mean, she is a conservative Republican like her father was. That's just not really any departure on that. Really, the admiration is about her uh, standing up for what she thinks are our Republican principles, standing against what she feels like former President Trump uh, breaking the law, being undemocratic, being un-American, his supportive of the January 6th uh, insurrection. Um, so it was definitely a, a warm um, reception. And I think part of it is there's just not that many people in politics uh, left like her. Uh, one of the questions at one of the other um, events earlier in the day was like, what other people like Liz Cheney, sort of more moderate Republicans will exist in Congress next year? Um, of course, uh, Liz Cheney lost pretty handily her primary um, last month and the other members of the Republican party who have, um, you know, supported, supported the, the most recent impeachment attempt, attempt into president Trump. They're not coming back to Congress, right? It, it's going to be pretty, you know, ideologically sort of pure caucus. Um, so I think, uh, you know, not, not that you know, Liz Cheney was not impressive. It was, it was a very interesting uh, panel, but I think that uh, what she's doing and, and sort of standing up for her principles is sadly a pretty rare thing in American politics right now. Well, she inevitably was asked about the January 6th committee, which she's the co-chair of, and they're having their, what many expect to be their final hearing on Wednesday. What she said about it that was interesting, though, she said, just to quote her from the... the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin on Saturday. One of the things that surprised me most about my work on this committee is how sophisticated the plan was that Donald Trump was involved in and oversaw every step of the way. It was a multi-part plan 
that he oversaw, he was involved in personally and directly. And while leaders in Congress were begging him, please tell the mob to go home, Donald Trump wouldn't. And just set the politics aside for a moment and think to yourself, what kind of human being does that? So I thought in many ways she's getting to the heart of one, why she's broken with uh, the Republicans and certainly with Trump. It's about character and most analysts have given her high marks for character, uh, even though she lost her re-election bid in Wyoming. How did that come across? Yeah, I mean, I think that is an interesting point, and it sort of goes to the heart of the question about whether she will remain a Republican. Uh, she had expressed uh, a belief, this is, you know, she said from some private conversations with many of her Republican colleagues, that there are, are many people within that caucus who agree with her, um, but for political self-preservation reasons, do not be publicly about it. So she feels like if Trump were to leave the stage, so to speak, where he uh, not to run for president again, or were he to run for president and not get the nomination, then um, other members of the party would sort of come back to those those principles that she had talked about. I mean, I don't think she's reassured by the fact that you know they're not speaking out for selfish reasons, um, but she feels like Trump and the Republican Party historically and what it believes in are fundamentally different things, and if they can disentangle themselves, then she can be a Republican. But if Trump, like you said, if he wins the nomination again, she said there's no place for her in the Republican Party. Well, she did go after Kevin McCarthy, who she thought shouldn't become the Speaker of the House. And because, of course, that would put him second in line to the presidency behind the vice president. She seems to have made the contrast between, or maybe the contrast was implicit, between her taking a principal stand and Kevin McCarthy just rolling over Every time he has a chance to do the right thing, he caves and becomes a Trump lapdog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, of other Californians, yeah, she uh, was, was in some ways more critical of, of McCarthy than she was of, of Trump. I mean, essentially, she feels like McCarthy is a coward uh, for not standing up for Trump, for only doing what is politically expedient for Kevin McCarthy and, in her, in her opinion, not good for the country. Um, so she uh, definitely doesn't feel like she should be speaker, and I don't get the sense that she thinks very highly of him at all. So just in closing then, you know, on my program, I try to get the most qualified speakers on whatever the subject of the day is, and I cannot claim to have been quite as successful as you all there at the Texas Tribune uh, in getting together an interesting crowd of people to speak about the important issues of the day. So who put this thing together and got all of these headliners? Yeah, this is uh, the Texas Tribune Festival is an annual event we have in the fall. This is our 12th, um, actually my first because I came from, came from Houston. Uh, and it's wonderful. We have a, a number of, of Texas politicians certainly that come, but over the years have really built it into sort of a national political event as well. Um, and obviously, you know, not a lot of Californians are probably going to make the trip to, you know, come see this in Austin, but we do live stream, uh, you know, our headliners, certainly Cheney, Cruz, um, Buddha Judge, like I said, uh, we're all live streamed. So it really gives people around the country a sense to see what we're up to and um, helps build our brand as well. So, yeah, no, this was um, uh, the 
the most popular Texas Tribune Festival to date, and uh, I think we're just going to keep building from here. Well, Zach Despard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Despard, who's a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton tells court not to trust Biden in Trump records case. We're going to take a restation break back with an assessment of why a small country of 10 million in the middle of Europe has such an outsized influence over the U.S., having provided the anti-woke ideology and electoral autocracy strategy that has captured Trump's GOP to want to imitate the regime Viktor Orban has installed in Hungary. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Krecker, who is a senior fellow with the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the director of the Political Capital Institute in Budapest, a social psychologist and political scientist. He's the author of The Hungarian Far-Right Social Demand, Political Supply and International Context, and Mass Paranoia, the Social Psychology of Conspiracy Theories and Fake News. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Krekel. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Peter. And you're just at the moment in Toronto, having flown in from Budapest. I imagine that uh, Viktor Orban is thrilled with what just happened in Italy with the election of this far-right coalition in Italy. What was the local response to the Italian elections. Orban is extremely glad with the results. And uh, if we put it a bit into context, he's lacking uh, strong international allies otherwise. So he has less and less friends uh, in the European Union and also in the transatlantic domain, not independently from the outlier position he represents in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, namely that he practically rhetorically sidelines Russia and uh, and criticizes Ukraine and the West and the United States. Uh, so uh, I think, so he feels that there is a kind of relief in these diplomatic problems. And he also feels that there is a government that uh, pretty much represents his, his ideology. Um, even if this coalition is not totally homogeneous, for example, Georgia Maloney has a different stance on Ukraine and Russia, more supportive towards Ukraine than, for example, Silvio Berlusconi or Matteo Salvini. But still, uh, this is a conservative, I would say ultra-conservative far-right government. And uh, in many instances, like-minded to Viktor Orban's government, uh, for example, in their attitude towards Brussels. Well... The speech that Giorgio Maloney 
made recently before a forum of Vox, the right-wing party in Spain, was almost identical to the speech that Orban made at CPAC uh, recently here in Dallas, Texas. Yes, this is pretty important. Uh, she talks against woke ideology. Uh, she talks uh, similarly to Orban uh, against the uh, consumer culture that is uh, destroying our identities and the war against families. So I think most of the topics of the far right these days, uh, especially when it comes to this identity politics, uh, are very similar from the United States uh, to Italy and, and Hungary. As I said, there are notable differences though in their relation uh, towards Russia and Ukraine, but uh, there are, for example, differences as well between the Polish government, which is also a far-right government and the Hungarian government, uh, deep uh, cleavages in the relationship towards Russia, Poland is much more critical than Hungary, still it did not totally deteriorate the relationship. So I think in this siege mentality, when these parties feel that they are out of the mainstream and they have to fight against the mainstream, they can more easily overcome their existing and visible ideological differences as well. But Peter Krekow, I've always been puzzled as to why Orban, his pro-Russian stance, works in Hungary. I mean, is there no historical memory of what happened in 1956? This is a brilliant question that I received many times from, uh, from uh, American friends and journalists and analysts. Uh, I think what we see here is the power of brainwashing. So Orban practically built up an informational autocracy where he is not uh, ruling by uh, pure force and by violence and by mass imprisonment and uh, repression, beating up protesters, but he lives by manipulation of information. Uh, and um, in this context, he, uh, if we take a look at the polls, uh, we can explain how it happened. So about 12 years ago, when Orban uh, came back on government, uh, his voter base uh, was the most critical towards Russia. Um, right now, they are the most pro-Russian uh, because uh, Orban just uh, rewrote the history. Right now, the narrative is that the whole communism was uh, practically a Western inv invention and it came from Germany. Uh, and uh, Russia and the Soviet Union practically was only a victim of, uh, of communism. And, and the threat finally uh, was back then, was coming from the West as well, and it's from the West again. And uh, in the voter base of Fidesz, the uh, attitudes towards Ukraine deteriorated a lot, and the attitudes towards Russia have impro improved a lot. So Orban can practically turn uh, the thinking of his voter base upside down. And this is mainly because of he has a very powerful propaganda machine, the most centralized media environment uh, that we can observe within the whole European Union. So would it be like here in the United States, all we had was Fox News? Yes, I think, or even worse uh, than that. Uh, uh, maybe 
Nation One or or uh, or or even Breitbart. I, I think what what the mainstream media represents in Hungary uh, is more similar, I think, to probably to to Breitbart. <clears throat> it's full of conspiracy theories. It's full of uh, of um, anti-establishment messages, uh, full of uh, hatred of, of the elites and also um, very loyal uh, to the leader. And um, and probably the, the big difference uh, is that, uh, for example, in Hungary, there is a strong uh, pro-Chinese stance as well. So it's interesting that how uh, Viktor Orban plays the role of the freedom fighter, while um, on the other hand, being very loyal to both Russia and China. So there are some geopolitical differences, but I think the, the um, alt-right in the United States is increasingly uh, similar to uh, what, what Viktor Orban represents, or I would say also the other way around. So Viktor Orban imported quite a lot of techniques, um, quite a lot of, uh, campaign uh, messages and strategies, and also media strategies from the United States. Well, from Stephen Bannon, right? I mean, Stephen Bannon is an advisor to Giorgio Maloney, the new right-wing leader in, in Italy. Exactly, and Steve Bannon have met several times with both or Orban and uh, his advisors, uh, and also uh, uh, Finkelstein and Birnbaum, two American uh, campaign advisors, uh, worked for the Hungarian government as well. They helped, for example, to tailor made the uh, campaign against George Soros that proved to be highly successful in winning the elections back to 2018. So, but it's all a big lie because Orban is the establishment. Him and his cronies have been pocketing money from the EU for decades. It's a joke. I mean, how did he hoodwink the Hungarian people into believing that somehow he was an outsider and a revolutionary when he's a kleptocrat. Yes, his regime is uh, built on on uh, nepotistic corruption. So it is it is really a, a kleptocracy in many sense, and there are many reports that that underlines that. Uh, on the other hand, he is a very uh, talented populist politician in the sense that he can still play uh, the role of the one of us. But I think Donald Trump is, is quite talented in that sense as well, why he is really not just one of the American people. If we take a look at his financial background and, um, and family background and so on. But or Orban uh, plays a similar game and he can still sell that he is a modest man um, and he he is not uh, that much uh, interested about um, money, while his cronies are practically buying up the whole country, and they're doing it by uh, using EU funds, uh, the funds of the European Union, which makes it uh, even more uh, bizarre. Um, Orban can give back the uh, pride for many Hungarians by sending the message that we do not want to imitate the West anymore. Uh, the West has to imitate us. There is nothing to envy in the West because it's just uh, multiculturalism, liberalism, woke ideology, liberal 
uh, oppression and, and things like that, while uh, Hungary have uh, become practically uh, increasingly a pilgrimage place for conservative all around the world, including the United States, uh, they can project their dreams into Hungary by claiming that this country is still uh, still religious, which is not that much true. If you take a look at the polls, that it's still uh, traditional, uh, and it's and it's still uh, free of multiculturalism and mass immigration, which is pretty much true. But on the other hand, it it. Uh, it just underlines how bad the demographic outlook is in Hungary, as well in the whole Central Eastern European region. Well, the argument that you've just put forth that is made by Orban and his supporters, that Hungary is, is the leader in the world of anti-woke ideology, and others are modeling it, is actually accurate. The Republican Party in this country is following his cue. The most popular voice on Fox News, Tucker Carlson, spent a whole week broadcasting from Hungary and basically being a complete supplicant of Orban's. So they're right in believing that he has an outside influence. I mean, that's why I'm speaking with you, Peter, because it's a phenomenon over here. One of our parties, two parties, is being captured by a failed president who is a wannabe mafia don, his best friend is a genuine mafia don in Moscow, Vladimir Putin, and the hero of the new Republican alt-right movement that's captured the party is none other than uh, Viktor Orban. Yes, I I think it, this is a clear success for Orban internationally, and we have to give credit uh, for him. I mean, Hungary is a country of 10 million within EU, within NATO. It should not be that interesting place in the world, honestly, because simply the country does not matter that much, neither economically nor politically. But but Orban built him up as, as uh, this frontman of the uh, international uh, far right, and um, and while I think he's echoing a lot of views that, as I said, he imported from the United States as well, and and pundits in Hungary uh, are still looking at the U.S. for for inspiration. In many sense, he he could uh, sell back his ideology and and. Um, and um, and push the message for for the Americans that this is the way how you should govern the country. Why I think the differences between the hung between Hungary and uh, and the United States are huge. And also again, don't forget that while Orbán still has a clear uh, support from the majority of the Hungarian voters, the way how he could achieve that is that he occupied the whole institutional space and he switched off practically all the checks and balances. And uh, if you do so, so it's it's clearly an increasingly authoritarian regime, then of course you can keep the power, but you're, you're giving up your freedom as well. And uh, in Hungary, for example, if you, if you are a teacher uh, who, are, uh, who is working in a, in a, a countryside school and you start protesting 
against the government on your Facebook page or publicly, then you can easily uh, find yourself fired. And there have been many, many cases like that. So uh, more steps towards authoritarianism means more steps uh, away from uh, personal freedoms. And this is something that uh, everyone has to uh, take into consideration who, who who is attracted by these tribal wars sure. that are increasingly characterizing political debates uh, in all over the world. Well, just in closing, of course, teachers are now being harassed by the governor of uh, Florida, who is also in the mold of Orban. So just in closing here, I'm curious to know how much the German Christian Democrats are, have been the enablers. Finally, the EU is cracking down and they're not going to give Orban a blank check anymore, which is good news. But on the other hand, big companies like Mercedes-Benz are investing heavily in Hungary because you have cheap labor and weak unions. So are they de facto allies, uh, German industrialists? This is a pretty fair assessment and, and a very important topic to raise. Uh, Germany helped uh, Putin to rise and Germany helped Viktor Orban to rise as well. And yes, German companies uh, that are having a um, very dominant role in, in the Central Eastern European region, economically, some talks about the German hegemony in, in Central Eastern Europe. So this German mercantilism um, is, is very ready to go into compromises. So you can be autocrat until you support uh, our business. So clearly, um, Germany still uh, plays the enabler role. Uh, in Hungary, on the other hand, I would say that there is a slow sobering process and Viktor Orban and Fidesz has been practically expelled from the European People's Party uh, in the last years. Since then, we can see that, that even the German politicians have a totally different approach towards Orban. They still think that the unity of the EU is the most important. And for that, we have to make sacrifices. But don't forget that it was Chancellor Merkel who could deceive Central Eastern European uh, leaders and pass the so-called rule of law conditionality mechanism that also was voted by Orban. Uh, which which made it possible that some of the EU funds will be frozen and Hungary will lose them. So I think EU dominated by Germany uh, learns very slowly, but but finally I think there is much more knowledge about Hungary and a much harsher attitude than it has been before. At the same time, I would say that Hungary should not be afraid that. Uh, all the EU money will be frozen. So what I would rather expect is some important gestures and messages on some funds stripped, but uh, Hungary will still receive a fair amount of EU money and Orban will be not shy to use it uh, to the internal obstruction of the European Union. Well, Peter Krakow, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot, Jan. And again, I'll be speaking with Peter Krecker, who is a senior fellow with the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the director of the Political Capital Institute in Budapest, Hungary, a social psychologist and political scientist. He is the author of The Hungarian Far-Right Social Demand, 
political supply and international context, and mass paranoia, the social psychology of conspiracy theories, and fake news. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. I'm not